Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. It's the most important battle of the Civil War that you've never heard of. Well, if you're listening to the show, you've probably heard of it. But it remains obscure and rarely studied. Not until the 1990s did the first books dedicated specifically to this battle appear, making it perhaps the last major battle of the war to receive scholarly attention. We'll talk today with the author of one of those books, Dr. Kenneth No, who wrote Perryville, This Grand Havoc of Battle. Join us on Civil War Talk Radio. time each day do you spend managing your personal or business calendar 15 minutes a half an hour maybe more is the conference room available for next week's meeting and how many people do you have to ask to find out have you ever misplaced or worse yet lost your day planner or handheld device and what do you do about that missing information do you own or operate a salon or carpets cleaning business how about a realty office or any one of a thousand other service based organizations can your customers make their appointments even when your office is closed if any of this sounds familiar then schedule online is the solution for you for more information call toll free 888-668-3355 that's 888-668-3355 or visit us online at www.scheduleonline.com Wherever you are, you deserve World Spa, a day spa for both men and women specializing in Western therapies with age-old Eastern techniques. All World Spa providers are professionally licensed specialists in their fields. We provide spa treatments for all schedules, from as little as 30 minutes to all-day programs. World Spa also has a spiritual library where you can relax and enjoy our collection of books, videos, and audio tapes. World Spa is open seven days a week by appointment and features a variety of special treatments, spa services, facials, exfoliation, and much more. We also offer products such as beauty and skin treatments, health drinks, herbal teas, and food supplements. World Spa also accommodates groups of five or more so you can make it a full and special day. Come enjoy the World Spa difference. Call us today at 619-624-0506 or visit us on the web at www.worldspas.org. Have a question or comment? To speak to our show hosts or guests during the live show, call in toll-free in North America, 877-514-7300. And from elsewhere in the world, call 001-858-277-1444. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. Jerry Prokopovich, speaking to you from the campus of East Carolina University, not in East Carolina, but in North Carolina, Greenville, North Carolina, but as my lawyer reminds me to say, not speaking on behalf of the university or the history department or anyone at all other than myself. This morning or afternoon, whenever you're listening, our guest is Dr. Kenneth No, 
author of Perryville, This Grand Havoc of Battle. Dr. No, are you there? I am there. Good morning, Jerry. Good morning. Can I call you Kenneth? Please do, or Ken. Or Ken, even better. Otherwise, I would, with a James Bond-like grin, call you Dr. No. My Dr. students always get a great laugh out of that the first day of class. That, that must be, uh, uh, I was hoping I was the first one to come up with that. I have this closet fantasy of showing clips from the movie when I teach large surveys. I've never talked myself into it, but I will one of these days. I think that, that would be an excellent idea. I think uh, students would definitely uh, appreciate that. Well, students have heard of James Bond. Uh, they've heard of, uh, of the, the villain doctor, no, but they've not heard, I'm guessing, of the Battle of Perryville. And I thought we'd jump right into that. Sure. Um, that is almost bizarrely obscure in Civil War studies, it seems to me. Why does nobody know about this battle? I think it's a long story. Um, you mentioned before the break that there were no books about it until the 1990s. I'd be remiss not to mention uh, Ken Haffendorfer's book, which came out in 82. But even with that... I, 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 let me interrupt you. I was thinking of that one, and I didn't have it to hand, and I, I guessed it was 1990, but it was that early. Yeah, it was 82, and then a second edition came out in the 90s. Maybe that, that's what I'm thinking. The first one came out as just the press he went to just published the draft he gave them. I believe so. And it was filled with all kinds of typographical errors and didn't do any justice to his work. Yeah, the second edition's much nicer. Much better. Even so, with, yes. Uh, but even with that, yes. Even with that. Uh, um, I think it's a long story as to why Perryville was forgotten. And what's significant, I think, is that it was forgotten almost immediately. Uh, going back and looking at newspapers from late 1862, I was surprised to find how quickly it disappeared. Uh, within a week, I was reading about Battle of Corinth or Iuga. More importantly, I think, was the ascendancy of what was happening in Virginia. You had Antietam a couple of weeks earlier. You had the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. Everybody was arguing about that. You had the November 62 elections coming up. So. Everyone was arguing about that. Perryville fell through the cracks almost immediately for everybody who wasn't there. And it just continued in the years after the war. I quote a Michigan soldier, Marshall Thatcher, who writes 15 years after the war that the battle deserved more than what he called a contemptuous notice. If you look at Civil War studies as they developed then in the 20th century, Again, the importance of the Virginia theater, the Virginia fighting over what was happening in the West, that plays a role. I'm a Virginian. I didn't care about the Western theater for a long time. I didn't know anything about Perryville until I first went there in the early 80s. That, that, even, go ahead, please. Even when uh, you had historians like Tom Connolly and James Lee McDonough starting to write more and more about the Western battles, Perryville just slipped through the cracks. And at that point, I really don't know why. Well, that, it was it, good for me. The Western theater really did get short shrift in, in historical writing, uh, for all the reasons you pointed out, uh, up through the 20th century, through the, near the end of the 20th century, you finally get a sort of uh, renaissance in Western theater writing, of which your work is certainly a part. But even within that, as you say, Perryville was not much written about or talked about. Well, set the strategic background for this, this battle. Talk about the campaign and, and why it actually was important. Sure. Well, the place to start is after Shiloh, the Confederate Army, initially under Beauregard, and then Bragg retreats eventually to Tupelo. Um, Bragg realizes that he has to do something. He has to go on the offensive. The question is where and how. 
one possibility is to move back against Corinth. But a more intriguing possibility is to move into Tennessee. Uh, remember that Henry Halleck has dispatched Buell's Army of the Ohio across northern Alabama toward Chattanooga. Buell offers uh, an interesting target. He's also pressing on Chattanooga, which is lightly held essentially by a small army under Edmund Kirby Smith. Eventually, I think under a lot of prodding from Kirby Smith and a lot of important Kentucky politicians as well, Bragg moves his army remarkably over 776 miles from Tupelo down to Mobile, up to Montgomery, Atlanta, Chattanooga, places his army in front of Buell, which has been moving, the army's been moving very slowly because of guerrillas, uh, water levels are very low because of a drought that summer, railroads are not sufficient to supply that army. You've got the Confederates placed in East Tennessee. They move into Kentucky. Uh, late in the summer, Kirby Smith goes first, uh, wins a decisive battle at uh, Richmond, occupies Lexington. Uh, Bragg moves north into Kentucky as well. Buell follows. Buell has been very unwilling to move across northern Alabama in the first place. He's much more interested in protecting his supply line, which runs from Louisville down to Nashville. And he essentially falls back along his supply line, first up to Nashville then back to Louisville. Uh, both armies are in the bluegrass of Kentucky by late in September. Um, Bragg is waiting for Kirby Smith before he goes on any sort of, um, well, some days he wants to go on an offensive campaign, some days he's falling back on the defensive. Bragg really is not sure what he wants to do. Uh, at the beginning of October, Buell marches his army. Let me inter interrupt if I can just sure. while, we're, while we're at the end of September. So these two armies march, uh, Bragg on the offensive and Buell keeping tabs on him, basically, from Chattanooga up to Louisville, which mm -hmm. is a long way to walk. It is. And it is. the weather is not very propitious. Not at all. I stress to my students the importance of weather throughout the Civil War, but certainly in 62, it's incredibly important. If you think about early in the year, uh, it was very wet. It was very rainy. And that rain affects Fort Henry, it affects Shiloh, it affects the Seven Days campaigns. But in the summer of 62, this incredible drought begins to move up from the Gulf, eventually into the Midwest. What that means is that both armies, as they move north toward Kentucky, are moving through parched areas. Uh, little has grown that summer. Much of, much of it has already been gleaned by other troops working in the area. Uh, there's very little water. The water that exists is often full of scum and no doubt microbes as well. Uh, I suspect that both armies were very dehydrated and probably not in tip-top condition. Uh, logistically, I think, for both armies, the march into Kentucky was a nightmare. Uh, very little supply, uh, trying to live off the land, especially the Confederate Army, but there wasn't much to live off of. Uh, they were really in bad shape by the time they got up into the state. Now, when they get to Louisville, the, uh, you sometimes see this described as the, the race to Louisville. Mm -hmm. between the two armies. Bragg has a head start, and Buell is, is no speed demon, as we know. And yet Buell gets there first. Why didn't Bragg just keep on going right into the city? For most of the march, Bragg never intended to take Louisville. He thought about it from time to time. But his real intention was to get somewhere into central Kentucky and link up with Kirby Smith. 
The problem was Kirby Smith didn't want to link up. Precisely the moment Bragg wanted him to move west and, and join his army, Kirby Smith takes off east into the mountains after George Morgan, who had abandoned Cumberland Gap. Bragg's really looking for a place where those armies can unite and be supplied. So the race to Louisville, in fact, was, was something that soldiers assumed was happening, but in fact, uh, that was never really Bragg's intention. Could he have taken the city? It's quite possible he could have taken the city. It's, it's lightly held uh, until the Army of the Ohio arrives. It's held largely by new recruits. Some of them have been in the Army two and three weeks. Many of them are unarmed. Uh, they really don't even start digging entrenchments around the city until pretty late. So it's conceivable that he could have taken the city. I don't think he could have held it. And more to the point is I don't think that was ever really his intention anyway. But had he improvised and, and done that, it certainly would have put the Army of the Ohio in a very difficult spot. Certainly it would have. Uh, they would have been cut off from their, their rail line north of the Ohio River. But, but as you say, that was not his goal. Um, there's that, that interesting interlude on the way there at uh, Munfordville where the uh, Union forces are surrounded uh, and have to decide whether to surrender or not. Right, uh, under the command of John Wilder. Um, an important moment in the campaign. Uh, Munfordville, as you say, is on the way. There's a Union garrison at Munfordville protecting a very vital railroad bridge across the Green River. Um, Bragg is not actually moving his army toward Munfordville. He's on a parallel road that would have actually allowed him to bypass the city. But one of his brigades, uh, Chalmers' brigade, uh, persuaded by some of uh, Kirby Smith's cavalry, uh, decides to attack the garrison at Munfordville, and they're repulsed. Uh, when Bragg finds out about this, he's appalled. He thinks that this will uh, devastate the morale of his army if uh, their first fight anywhere in the state is a defeat. So he actually marches the entire army over Munfordville, surrounds it, and eventually compels Wilder to surrender after a very bizarre moment. Uh, Wilder says that he'll surrender if Bragg can prove that he has enough men to... Uh, take the place anyway. So Simon Buckner, who was a native of Munfordville, actually meets with Wilder and gives him a tour of at least part of the Confederate Army. Look at all these men. Look at how many guns I've got. Wilder says, yeah, okay, I'll surrender. It costs time. It costs a couple of days. It allows Buell to actually catch up. Um, I think it was a diversion that Bragg did not need, and he kept moving uh, he would have put himself in a much better position. It's often said that Bragg should have fought at Munfordville. That's where the great battle for Kentucky should have taken place. But most of Bragg's officers at the time thought it was a bad idea. They only had a couple of days' worth of supplies. More to the point, it would have been very easy for Buell to have flanked, gone around, um, moved on to Louisville. That would have left Bragg trying to play catch-up. Um, even had had a fight, even if Bragg had won that fight, Buell simply would have fallen back into a wall-entrenched position at Bowling Green. So what happened, so Buell does end up going around, ends up in Louisville. Bragg is a little bit to the east. He's in Bardstown. Bardstown, and now we're at the end of September, beginning of October. Right. What's our next step? What happens is that Buell plans really a, a well-done tactical campaign. He sends eventually two divisions almost directly east out of uh, Louisville toward Frankfurt, the state capital. 
where, as it happens, Kirby Smith and Bragg are attempting to install a Confederate governor of Kentucky in order to uh, start conscription in the state. Uh, Kentuckians have not rushed forward to join Confederate arms, as everyone has promised, so Bragg's decided just to draft them. These two divisions move toward Frankfurt. The rest of the army on three separate roads begins moving out of Louisville, essentially in a southeastern direction, toward the Confederates at Bardstown. Uh, Bragg takes the bait, and indeed, until the night of the Battle of Perryville, when the battle is actually over, Bragg will continue to believe that most of Buell's army is actually farther to the north, ready to confront Kirby Smith. Uh, he's left Leonidas Polk in command in Bardstown. Polk begins to feel pressure on these roads. His cavalry reports skirmishing almost every day. He begins to fall back. Uh, in the direction of Danville and Harrisburg, Kentucky, eventually back toward their supply depot at Camp Dick Robinson, which is uh, near Harrisburg. They go through Perryville, and actually most of the Army will march through Perryville before, on the night of the 7th, uh, Bragg and Polk, via courier, agree that they will stop and fight on the morning of October 8th. None of them have any idea about how large the Union force of Perryville is. They're all assuming it has to be relatively small. Um, my reading of the sources suggests that maybe they, they assume it's a division or two. And the idea is that Polk will attack on the morning of the 8th, uh, easily dispatch this force, then move north, join the rest of the armies, and fight Buell up there. Absolute confusion, poor use of cavalry on both sides. Uh, it doesn't quite work out that way because most of Buell's army is arriving slowly in the Perryville area. Perryville is important really for two reasons. We often hear about the water, and that's true. Perryville is often described as a fight for water, and there is some water in Perryville. You've got uh, the Chaplin River, which is all but dried up, but there are actually some stagnant pools out in the bed. There are also uh, springs around town. Uh, Confederates know this. But it's also a road junction. Those three roads that the three core of Buell's army have used to move against the Confederates all converge to Perryville. So it's a road junction, as well as a spot where they all can find a little bit of that desperately needed water. That's what brings them to Perryville. It's sort of uh, Gettysburg in miniature. In many ways. It's certainly not a fight that anyone intends. And once it even begins to happen, it, it's seen as almost as a sideshow of a bigger battle that's to come. Now, you've got the Confederates expecting uh, to attack on the 8th. Right. But the Union armies are arriving with Buell's idea that they will attack even earlier. They're, they're planning to, uh, well, they're planning to do the same thing, actually. They're planning to do the same thing, and it's fascinating to note why uh, Buell changes his mind. And, and we're going to get to that. I hear the music telling us we'll take a short break. So when we come back, we're going to find out we have the armies on the battlefield ready to go. We'll find out what happened at Perryville on October 8, 1862, when we return in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> 